I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Maria Cornejo has been a designer for over 30 years, and I've always loved how relevant her collections feel to real women's lives. Maria and I talk about her early life as a political refugee, her vast career, and her personal growth over the past few years and during the pandemic. Are you in Manhattan? Or are you? No, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm at home. <laughs> nice. How are things over there? They're good in Charlotte. They're pretty stable in Charlotte, and they're getting so much better in California. That's good. And you're in Charlotte now in California? I'm in Charlotte. No, I haven't been to California the whole time. I've been here. I totally forgot that you guys have the store in California now. How's yeah, that? Brentwood. What, what a crazy time to be open. So crazy. I mean, well, to be open one year, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I miss you guys. I mean, I miss the energy. You know, like New York's been under such a, you know, traumatic time that it's been, been heavy all, here. Sort of strange because we're sort of working, but we're only working in the office certain days, like, you know, two days a week and the rest right. of the time everybody's working from home. So it's hard. I miss my team. It's weird. Maria, will you tell the listeners where you're from? I was born in Santiago de Chile, but uh, my family, you know, we emigrated, we, my parents were political refugees and I went to England when I was 11. Pinochet? Yes yeah we had to leave and it, you know it was after our September 11th. Right. We had se September 11th in 1973. And what happened? Uh, Pinochet came in aided by the Americans you know so. <laughs> Sorry. Yes I know I know I don't know how I ended up here. I used to think I used to think America was the devil until I came here and I realized no sometimes governments are not the people particularly now oh my god yes yes <laughs> so tell yes. me will you tell me a little about your early childhood there what do you remember what were your parents like your grandparents my mother and father were originally teachers and then my mother became an art director and she was the art director in the national publishing company called Kimantu, which did all the art books, propaganda books, all the textbooks, they did everything. So it's a really big company and she was the art director. And my dad was head of sales at the same company. Wow. They were both pretty politically active. They were young, I mean, very young. I mean, by the time they were 21, like good kids in the 60s, Catholic kids, you know, they had three kids. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, they were very young parents, very active, very social. And my grandparents, you know, we spent most, I spent most of my summers with my grandparents because they were, you know, they were cuddly and sweet and spoiled <laughs> us. And my parents were too busy to spend time with us. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> what are your earliest fashion memories in Chile? You know, my aunts were pretty stylish. I remember my aunt, Carmen, she worked as a sec secretary for Gildemeister or something, some big company. 
and my other aunt worked at the airport and you know at that time they were both like in the 20s and something so they always had really snazzy outfits my aunt had a which sounds horrific now but you know in Chile and like in France they eat horse meat that she had a pony coat you know made out of fur but you know it's like any fur really I don't really like any fur now, but it was, it was that time. And then my mom, you know, she would have, you know, it was the sixties. So she would have our outfits, my sister and I's matching her outfits. Everything got made by, by a seamstress. Yeah. So she would get the fabric and then she would have our outfits made to match hers, which was really funny, you know? (laughs) And, you know, and also my grandmother, she was always knitting and making things. And so I learned to knit when I was seven. And to sew. And I used to make, you know, I knit my dolls like outfits. And, you know, and I actually have a doll. I still have the doll. And it's so weird because she's black, but she has blue eyes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she has a white knitted halter neck dress that I made her. She still oh, has it oh, on. That's so chic. Yeah, I mean, I still have her. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I didn't live with a lot of things in Chile. So when we ended up in Peru for a year in between finding a country that would adopt us, uh, give us asylum, my grandmother sent me my doll, which was the only thing, you know, that I had from those times. You know, we had, we'd left with clothes on our backs, so we didn't leave with anything. And did you, did you understand at the time you were, how old were you? I was 11. And so did you understand political asylum or kind of why you had to leave? Was it? I did, but, you know, I think with children of political refugees, I think, you know, we understood also that my mother wasn't very happy. You know, they had tortured somebody in front of her. Mm. And the only reason she got away is because uh, one of the judges at her trial had basically recognized her and he had been you know my godfather had been in the the air force Mm -hmm. but he was now dead and this guy had cleaned was my uncle's orderly when he was younger and he recognized my mother and basically gave her 24 hours to leave the country wow and so the un got us out and so you went to peru first and then went to england yeah we were in peru for a year waiting for asylum my dad had applied to with my mom, they had applied to Cuba, England, and Canada because my dad could speak English. And my dad was a bit of a socialist, so he wanted to go to Cuba. So I thought I was going to go, to, I was totally brainwashed that so I was going to go to Cuba, do ballet, and do farming, which sounds amazing. I do, yeah, it does. <laughs> you know? So, but at the time, you know, they used to come, um, you know, they used to call uh, from the embassies and they would send somebody around and basically they would say, okay, the next plane to Havana, we have five seats and they would just pick the people that were on the list. Wow. And the day, the day they came for us, we went there. We had come to the beach stupidly. <laughs> you know, after a year of doing nothing, we were just getting to the point that, you know, we can't just sit waiting. So we went to the beach and then so that we missed that one. And the next one that came up was England. Wow. So I ended up in England. And what, what part of England? I ended up first, we ended up in London, in Shepherd's Bush, which was pretty amazing because uh, at the time it was like 1975, you know, it's glam rock. There was just so much going on in fashion. I thought everybody was so glamorous. All the, even the garbage men had blue eyes, you know, I thought they all looked <laughs> like film stars. <laughs> English kids were evil to me because they thought I was you know, Pakistani, they used to call me all sorts because I'd been, you know, I hadn't been to school. So I got really dark. 
and we were just playing on the street all the time through. So, you know, children are really racist and mean at that age. So, so it was, it was tough in some ways, but then there was, you know, pretty amazing to be in a different country. I mean, I had this vision of London as, you know, Sherlock Holmes and fog and, and all of a sudden it was not quite that, you know? <laughs> and do you remember the clothes and sort of how you transitioned fashion-wise? Well, the clothes were at the time, you know, we were going uh, as refugees. We had nothing. So basically there was a house which smelled very moldy. This is why I don't really like vintage anymore. Right. Um, where, where the refugees were allowed to go in and pick clothes and bedding and anything you needed. But it was, you know, it was other people's stuff. So I'm very weird about vintage. <laughs> that makes sense. You know, I hate the smell of it. I had this conversation also with Hussein Shalayan, who is the same sort of situation. Right. And we both hate things that smell of somebody else. But I think one of the things that you do so well is that the clothes that you produce, that you create, feel like you've had them forever. And so I think you must, there must be something in that too, that you get the, you know, wanting things to feel like you've worn them forever but they just don't smell like somebody else shared them. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I like clothes that feel like you could live in and that feel comfortable and you can forget about them and you just feel like yourself. I think there's nothing more aging or, you know, old than wearing clothes that have a different shape. And you know what I mean? That make you feel restricted or, you know, that you're not quite good enough, that you can't eat your lunch or something. I hate that. <laughs> I, no, I think, I really do think you have the, some of the most feminist clothes ever, you know, that they, they make you feel comfortable with who you are. I think it's um, extraordinary what you do. I love that feminist clothes. I, I have they to are. use that one. They are. That's great. You don't feel like you have to change everything about yourself to fit into them. You just, they fit into your life automatically. I want to feel good enough. I want to feel enveloped. I want to feel protected. I mean, I call it urban camouflaging. Like you go out into the world every day mm. and you have to feel good about yourself. You can't go out not feeling comfortable. Yeah. And, you know, we have a lot of, as women, we have so many lives to lead and, and we have to, you know, and I'm not particularly confident or anything, but you sort of need to get that backbone and to go out into the world every day and face things and deal with things and having children. I mean, my kids are all grown up now. But I remember thinking, okay, well, I need something that will take me from breakfast, school drop-off, lunch meetings, evening cocktail. And it's hard. it was hard to find clothes like that. So that's what I wanted to design. You did. And, and thank God you started to do shoes too. So at what point did fashion come into your life in England? I started school in England when I was 12. So English is my second language. So I wasn't particularly confident. I remember doing chemistry and biology and... You know, my chemistry teacher, you know, at 15, you have to pick your O-levels in England. And, and I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm not good enough to do this. You know, I'd only been speaking English very, you know, very slightly. I mean, I arrived there when I was 12. So by the time I was 15, I could speak English, but I wasn't totally fluent. So I thought, okay, I can speak Spanish. I have a, an ear for languages. I can do English and I can do French and art. But my art teacher was pushing me towards the art side. Because he, you know, he thought I was good at art. And then as a 15-year-old, I got a, a job in the store called L mm -hmm. and Pierucci in Manchester. We had moved to Manchester then because they allocated refugees to different cities. And we got sent to Manchester. And so 
after getting the Saturday job in this fabulous fashion store, you know, Fivucci was amazing. Amazing. And they shared me with this other store called Elle that had all the designer collections, you know, like Montana, you know, Thierry Mugler and, you know, also Isiriyaki and stuff. And I worked with him. And my job as a 15-year-old was not very glamorous. I was supposed to get people's lunches, wash the hangers because we had white plastic hangers that had to be constantly kept clean. And, you know, and wear basically anything that wasn't selling, all the ugly stuff. <laughs> because they said, you know, oh, you're cute, you're young, you can wear the, that stuff, you'll sell it. And I was like, oh. but most of the time I spent just running around making sure that the, the main salespeople had what they needed, you know, and getting people drinks and running out to get people sandwiches, lunch and stuff, you know, but I, I learned a lot. And so when I did my own levels, I did art and everything. And then I decided to do... I did a foundation in graphics because uh, I didn't want to do a regular foundation. I wanted to do a foundation in graphics for a year. And then I moved to London to go to fashion school. And that was great. And then I worked for them as well in London. I worked for Isimiyaki. I worked for Joseph. Wow. So I worked in stores, you know, and, and I think that was really good training because you really see what, yeah, cause what women want to wear what's interesting, the reality of who the actual client is, not just the news, and what sort of things women are looking for in their life. And, and what things aren't working. I mean, I think that, that there are definitely yeah. the problems that are not, you know, being fixed. And then yeah. when you, you, meet, you met John Richmond in fashion? Yeah, I, no, I met John actually in Manchester. In a, we were both going clubbing. I think I was 18, just before <laughs> I went to college. I met him in a gay club. Mm. And so we set up, you know, when I moved to London, we were living together originally and we, I went to college and we were, at first, they wouldn't let me, he was like the star of his school, Kingston at the time, because mm-hmm. he was already, had already been there for two years. And so I wasn't, you know, I applied to Kingston, they wouldn't, they didn't want me there because they said I would be too much of a distraction for him. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that, saying that to somebody no. now? No. <laughs> so I ended up going to Ravensbourne, which actually I'm really glad I did because Ravensbourne at the time was a great school. That's where David Bowie went, you know, mm-hmm. it's in Bromley. It was outside the city. Mm-hmm. It was in a really beautiful campus where you had a campus for like art, architecture, you know, 3D design. It was all in the arts. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they said to me is like, whatever you do, don't mix with fashion students, mix with the art students, mix with the architecture. And that was a really good training to yeah. widening out my scope and my eye, not to be looking at fashion for inspiration, but to be looking at other things. And I can, you've always done that. And it's so clear. To me, if anything, if I look at fashion, I go, well, so that's been done. What's the point? I'd, I'd rather not look at it and just do my own thing. You started your own collection while you were in college? Well, I started helping him. So when I graduated, like two years or a year after him, I think it was, we decided to join forces because at the time, Joseph was buying his collection. They came to my college show. They wanted to buy my collection. And since we were living together, it seemed stupid to have two different collections. Right. So we blended into one. We called it Three uh, Richmond Cornejo. And, you know, and we had, a lot of success. We had this agent from Italy called El Bocci, who repped, now reps, you know, or used to rep like Rick Owens and the Queen. I mean, yep. at the time, at the time, 
<laughs> at the time, we were, we were his first we were babies, you know. And I remember the first season that he sold the collection. We had like 90 stores in Italy. It was amazing. Unreal. Unreal. And, you know, by the time I was 23, we had 20 of our own stores in Japan. We had a Japanese licensee. That's crazy. Yeah. I, it was, you know, it was the 80s. So <laughs> everything was possible in the 80s. True. <laughs> I also, just looking at those old collections, the Richmond Cornejo collections, I can see so much of you in those. Like, how long did that last? And what was the impetus to split? I mean, I think it lasted, let's see, I graduated 83. We, we, I think it lasted like four years, 83 till 87, 88, if I'm not mistaken. I think the last collection we did was winter 87. And, you know, I moved to Paris, met my husband, you know, Mark, mm -hmm. and, and, and we split up because Joe and I had already split up as a couple the mm -hmm. year previously. And it was, you know, it was very emotional. It was very hard to work together. Yeah. And we were trying to make it work, but it was just not, you know, I was really young. It was very painful to work with a person that you still love, but can't be with because it just wasn't the right timing or... You know, I always say like John and I were like, we, we crossed over for a millisecond and it was brilliant when we crossed over. And then it was like, we went in totally different directions. Yeah. And, and um, so yeah, so we split up the company, the Japanese company kept, and the Italian company that we had at the time kept making both of our collections separately. But that, you know, for a while the store stayed open holding both collections in the same store separately, but it just didn't work. You know, and I just wanted to, having a very high profile life from very young and being very, you know, having a lot of success, a lot of press, you know, and we were never rich, but we had a lot of success very early. And, you know, I remember being 23 and getting on this plane and we, I was opening 20 stores of our own and it was so surreal, but I was also bulimic. I was right. so stressed out. You know, I was basically spending most of my life on a plane. Yeah. I understand. And <laughs> yeah and I was really young and I was you know sitting in, in a, a factory in Japan by myself and you know also they were super misogynistic and you know that I would work with them and then the minute John turned up it's like I didn't exist right for a while, I just didn't want to do it anymore I just thought I, I need to step back I want to go and work for other people learn from other people's mistakes not my own you know yeah because I think when you grow up in the spotlight it's really tough well, I mean, and so young. Yes. And so then you designed for... For Joseph, for Tehen. I also did stuff for Philippe Deck and Equipment. Jigsaw. Jigsaw. And how did you end, end up in New York? Well, my husband at the time, you know, he was working a lot with Italian Vogue and, you know, fashion photography, yes. So he was always here in New York, you know. He was here for like five weeks at a time. Sometimes I just wanted to move back to England, be closer to my sister, my family and my friends and, and raise my kid in England. And he, he said, well, I'm always in New York. If you, if you move to England, you'll never see me either because the work's in New York right now. At the time, a lot of the work was in New York. And so we moved to, to America and, and then I sort of, fell in love with New York, which was, you know, I was always very anti-American because for me it was very traumatic after, you know, 9-11 in Chile. Sure. But when I came here, I realized that it wasn't like that. And, you know, how, 
Oh, there were some really good people and really good energy and the possibilities that were here and the sense of hope. Yeah. And then how did Zero start? It started as a retail concept, correct? Yeah. I mean, the year that I was pregnant, I had got, I had had enough of the fashion business. I said, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to open a creative space. I had saved some money from all the work that I had done. And I found a garage space on Mott Street. A friend uh, who worked at, you know, he was one of the directors at Noble, said to me, well, there's a space I've walked past. He said, you know, it's in Mott Street, so it's like a new up-and-coming area. So what happened is that I signed the lease for this place, and then I ended up basically pregnant <laughs> with the space closed. Nothing was happening to it. Uh, my grandfather died. My dad was dying. So I ended up spending most of the three months while my dad was in the process of dying yeah. in England to be near him and just being present, which I call it my magical time. And, and when I was very present and just pregnant and just being a daughter and sibling and, you know, I was sleeping at my sister's and not very comfortably. I was heavily pregnant, <laughs> but you know, I, I had a lot of time to think mm. and I thought, well, what do I want to do with this space? And I wanted to create something outside of what I'd done before and I make it into a creative space. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll just make cushions and covers, things that need no seasons and no, no bodies, you know. But then naturally I started draping and I started thinking, well, I'm in America now and I love, you know, I love jeans and I love T-shirts, but I don't like the way they look here. It's too boring. <laughs> I want them to be more interesting. So I was thinking of, how can I make like couture t-shirts, like weird t-shirts, but things that were made in cotton and, you know, like interesting denim things and things that you would want to wear every day, but that were not like everybody else's because at the time in New York, there was only like the Gap in Club Monaco. I just wanted to make my own stuff. Yeah. So it ended up being about, you know, I started experimenting with shapes, like four geometric shapes that once you put on the body become something and how they drape on the body depending where you put the armhole, depending where you put the, the neckline. And so that's how I started. I visited that space. You did? Oh my yeah. God. I do remember visiting a space. Wasn't there a factory there? Or yes. I, you know, my whole thing after working with big companies and seeing the amount of waste that they were creating and, you know, the, flying, you know, to Hong Kong to work with the netware factory and, you know, my boss, nickel and diamond, somebody for a dollar and a sweater. Meanwhile, I was being flown business class and put into very expensive hotels. It just didn't make sense to me. And also working with Italy and everything, I just wanted things to control. One of the, my main things was that what made me happy was the creative process mm -hmm. and to send the facts at the time and send things to be made somewhere else and not have an interchange with the person making them. It was really frustrating, so I decided I wanted to make everything in the place, and I wanted to have the address on the label, Mot Two Two Five, because I always thought how cool it was that APC they had the, the the original street name on the label, Rue de Fleurus. Yeah, and I just thought it's so nice that you know it's, it's it's a place, and it's an atelier, and the idea of an atelier and a working atelier is what I like. So I had three people sewing, one sewing jersey one sewing like a wovens and another one's you know pattern cutting and doing stretch fabrics it was like a mini factory in the back 
Exactly. And you were, you were really the first person that I remember talking about sustainability. Can you talk about that and why it's important to you? And I, you know, it's important to me because, um, like I said, after working for big companies and seeing all the waste and how it wasn't sustainable, I didn't want to go down that route. I just thought, no. And having children, you know, it's like, what do we leave behind for our children? We have to sort of preserve our resources. You know, we have to make sure that the planet stays in good shape for them. It's our responsibility, you know, uh, having a child is a very, I feel it's a very selfish act. Mm -hmm. So it's, if we're going to have children, we need to also look forward to the future for them and, and safeguard what's here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I started, when I first started working, I, I would literally comb like stock rooms and use like upcycle fabrics from, you know, whether it was Patagonia, like fleece or Donna Karen wool crepes. I would buy whatever I could get and make things out of things that were already existing. And so I was always like upside, even then in, you know, whatever I could find, I would find fabrics and I would make it, like, I would make a small batch of, you know, I don't know if you went right at the beginning of the store, but I used to literally make, because we didn't know what it was going to be. I would just make things and put a rack at the front <laughs> the first week. And if people reacted to it, we would make more. I love it. And it was, it's such a great way to work. Are you moving towards that a little bit now in the pandemic? Uh, well, we're, we're definitely reducing the size of the collection. One of the things that I've, I've been trying to edit the collection, but since we sell to, we, we were selling to, uh, you know, people like Barney's and some other big stores that were very demanding. And, and the problem was is that a lot of those big stores just asked for more deliveries just so they can discount it. Right. Exactly. So, and I wasn't, I was not happy about it, you know, because in my, when I first started working, I did not want to wholesale. Right. Because I knew that it was a slippery slope yeah. <laughs> well, of, I mean, of compromise. And, and it's, you know, it's also good because, you know, I got to meet people like you, but it's also when you're dealing with those big people, yeah. it's a slippery slope. But one of the things I've always loved about you and your collection is that you are so close to the actual retail store. Is, I mean, you, you are in it, but, yes. but also just that you, you really are so close to your client. So you really, and that's pretty rare in fashion for, I mean, it's, I feel like designers are, you know, 10 steps behind where the client is, but you've always been right there in it. it I mean, they are your friends, they are your community, they're your neighbors. So I feel like you've always really known what women want. As a woman, I, I think I can relate, you know, it's like I have friends who go, oh, I went to get this job and I was wearing your thing and I got the job. It made me feel confident. I got the job. Anything we can do to sort of boost each other up, whether it's through clothing or, you know, TLC talks, whatever we can do to sort of help each other, we should. I was so moved by a quote from you that said, being an outsider gives you your conviction and your identity. What would you tell a young girl who's struggling with being an outsider at this moment? You, I think being an outsider, you can use it as your strength because then uh, you don't have the voices, you know? I think for me, it's like I lost my mother when I was 14, so I had to build my own backbone. I had nobody telling me that what I was doing was great, nobody telling, pushing me forward. I had to push myself. Yeah. And it's tough. But also it means that when things get really rough, 
you find it in yourself to keep going you find it in yourself and and i always think about you know whenever i'm scared of something i always think well what's the worst that could happen mm-hmm. and and when you think like that you just think well actually it's not that bad <laughs> and, ev- and everything is temporary you know it, it passes and i think you have to especially in in this world you have to be your own person you know we only get one life so you have to be your own person mm-hmm. you can't be there as a substitute for somebody else no it's never going to be very good <laughs> no no and i think that's one of the reasons why i've stayed in this business i mean because i've i've carved my own identity mm-hmm. and i think if you have your own identity you have more lasting power than if you are following the trends of following whatever everybody else is doing. I mean, absolutely. There's nobody that does anything close to what you do because you're doing yourself. Yeah. And it's sort of, I always said, you know, I want to, I want to be around. I don't want to be super in because that means you're going to be out. I just want to be on the outskirts. I, that's how I've lived my whole life. I love that. Just sort of friends yeah. with everybody, but not really good. <laughs> not really in the middle of it all. Yeah, because then you can take your own time and, and, and find your own, you know, and system. Nobody, and nobody's really watching that hard. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think, you know, what also moving to different countries, I mean, I have to say, I creating your own rules and also uh, being aware if there's an energy that you get when you move to a different country or a new area that it sort of makes you a little bit like, well, what's the worst that can happen? A, a little bit fearless in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think coming to America to me gave me that, you know, everybody says, oh, America, you know, what, why did you move to America? I said, well, it's not that America makes you successful, but at least it gives you that idea mm-hmm. that things are possible, possible, that there is possibility and hope. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in a lot of places. Very true. Will you talk to me a little bit about the pandemic and what you learned about yourself or your family during the time? Well, you know, the, the weird thing is that, not the weird thing, but, you know, like we're talking about my daughter and my husband. My husband and I split up two years ago. I didn't know that. So, you know, it's, it's the pandemic hit right as I, we had, we sold our house, our marital home on the 19th of March. I had just gone through a whole year of moving and packing and repacking and things. I, you know, January, I found an apartment. I started setting up a new home. I was in the middle of collections and I went to Paris. I mean, it was just nuts. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd got, I was so stressed out and so skinny. And, and so when I got back to New York, I think around, I think we had an event for Women's Day on the 9th of March, I think it was. And it was great to see everybody. It was really nice. And then on the 10th, I went to Tulum. Mm. For, I was going for 10 days just to look after myself because I was like, totally burnt out. Mm-hmm. And there was rumors about you know, this happening, but it wasn't really that solid yet. Mm-hmm. So I thought the way I'm feeling right now, I've lost so much weight. I mean, I was weighing like 94 pounds. Oh, my God. I was so scrawny and run down and stressed out. You know, it had been a very emotional two years and very stressful with everything. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Tulum and just get my immune system up, get some sun, 
just chill, eat good food. And I had five days there. And all of a sudden, everybody's going, come back. They're going to close the borders. They're going to close the borders. So I came back. And lo and behold, I get sick. Regular sick or corona sick? The corona sick. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, and I was on my own. My son was upstate at college. I was living in my own, in my new place, uh, setting it up. But I literally, I was throwing up for three nights and I couldn't lift my head off the pillow for like 10 oh. days. Oh my God. So it was quite brutal. You know, when I started feeling better, it was a slow process. It took a while because mm. that's the thing about this virus is that, you know, the, the main symptoms can be maybe a couple of weeks or so, but then there's lasting things that just stay with you. The malaise and the just... Yeah. Oh and, you know, the exhaustion, the lack of breath. It was tough. And then the minute I got better, then we start, I started being on all these panels that this is a fashion. I'm a board member of the CFPA, so there was board meetings. So a lot of Zoom calls. The, which, are, which can make you sick in, the, in themselves. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and quite, you know, stressful because, you know, like this is a fashion. I was on these panels with like 69 designs from independent designs from around the world, from Paris, Milan, London. You know, you're like at school, you know, and you're all on a little screen and you put your hand out when you want to speak. And we're all talking about how to move forward and, you know, mm-hmm. same with the CFDA, you know. Um, so it was intense. So what do you um, think you learned about yourself in, uh, through all of that? That sounds like a lot. It's been a tough years, actually, <laughs> between yeah. personal and everything yeah. else. I think I've learned that, you know, to trust myself, that I'm good enough and uh, things are temporary and they will pass, you know, and yeah. getting confidence in things like my gut feeling when things, I feel things are not right and I say that they're not right. I think setting boundaries with people, I've, I've learned that. Mm. And also, you know, um, appreciating, you know, one of the bright spots of this is that when I was looking for somewhere to live, uh, because I have two cats and a son and, <laughs> and, I thought, okay, I need another bedroom. I need backdoor space. And so I found this little place and, and, and I'm really happy with it because I have a backyard. I'm such a gardener. It's so nice. And that makes me happy. And I realized what really makes me happy is my plants, my cats. Me too. That's exactly what I like the best. <laughs> yeah. Healthy. <laughs> what did you grow this summer that you loved? Oh God, tomatoes, chilies, basil, just the usual things, you know, just to have salads and stuff and chili peppers. And I have a little fig tree, which is about to give fruit, you know. We have a fig tree right next to our house. And the night before last, we had the biggest raccoon in the tree eating the figs. (laughs) Oh my God, yes. He was so, he was in heaven. I really was like, I get it, man. That Good plan. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that was lucky because here the, the squirrels, there were squirrels wandering around, but because I have cats, they haven't come down to eat things. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I had a, a, my blueberry bush gave me blueberries for, you know, a good month for breakfast. That's so nice. Well, how so, you know, and it's, everything's in pots, but it's, it's, it's great. It made me feel like, wow. You know, it's really, it's, it is about nature, mm-hmm. just finding bits of nature and, you know, and I wasn't able to read much through this because I was always on those blooming Zoom meetings, but gardening has really saved me. And I didn't even watch much TV, you know, I think everybody was watching TV. I was spending more time outside than ever. 
I was too. And I, I, the same, I had a really hard time reading. I just, I couldn't concentrate or, yeah. focus, or it just didn't feel relevant or something. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, my attention span, I think the plants are the one thing that just keep me really grounded right now. On every podcast, we ask what our guests wore to the prom. And I guess you didn't have a prom in England, but was there, no. <laughs> was there a significant um, a dress that you love that you've worn of your own or a favorite dress in your life? I think my favorite, I recently, I mean, last year, no, 2018, I got an award by the fashion group for sustainability and I wore this dress, the Jasmine dress, which is named after my niece. Uh-huh. And it's turquoise and it was beautiful. And that night, Mark Ruffler gave me the award and it, I just felt really recognized and loved. And it was just so, you know, that was like my prom. <laughs> you know, yeah. a little late in the game though, I'm 56, <laughs> but. Did you have your hair done and makeup and did you wear jewelry? Yes, I mean, I just create, I always do my own hair and makeup, you know, I mean, a couple of times I've had hair and makeup done, but most of the time I, you know, I go straight from work or, you know, I do it myself. So I just scrape my hair back and it was, at the time it was dark, my hair's white right now. I let my hair go white. I bet it's beautiful. I don't know. I keep chickening now. Now that I'm single, I'm thinking, do I, should I dye my hair again? Do I look too old? <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with me today. And um, I'm really looking forward. September and seeing the new collection. I can't personally and our clients, we can't wait to see new, new Maria Bernina. Thank you. So great to talk to you. And I can't wait to visit you guys again and have some of those pickles, <laughs> fried pickles. Oh, we can't wait. <laughs> yes. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. What We Wore is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.